0: Crossway Church, Sermon Audio. Good morning, Crossway Church. Please uh, turn your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. Uh, We'll be at verses um, 19 through 24. 1 John chapter 3. And uh, thankfully the roads weren't too bad this morning, at least not when we got here. I hope that that continues to be the case supposed to get a little bit warmer out there, so uh, not warm, but just above freezing. So I think the roads will be fine on the way home. Uh, And having said that, everybody that's not here today but is streaming, we love you and miss you. Hope you're doing well, and thanks for joining us by the live stream. All right, please do turn, if you haven't already, to 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 to 24. Our parents here have all had a similar experience. Sometimes we laugh about it because we understand it all too well. When one of our children wrongs one of our other children, we call them to repent. And part of what we do is we call them to reconcile with one another. And one does this by acknowledging their wrongdoing by expressing regret, that's what an apology is, is the expression of regret, and then seeking or asking forgiveness. Asking the other person to release you from, you know, from holding this against this wrong that they did against, against you. And it should look something like, I'm sorry I ate every last bit of your Christmas candy. Please forgive me. It should look something like that. And then even, you know, let me get you more candy, or uh, make it up to you somehow, to make restitution. You know, something like that. But unfortunately, it often looks something like this. So-and-so apologized to your sister. I'm sorry, please forgive me. It's just so heartfelt in those moments. And you can just tell by the tone you know, that it's, it's not as sincere as it needs to be. They're, they're not quite getting the lesson yet. They're going through the motions, but not quite, in, quite getting the lessons. And you, you, it's not really coming from the heart. And you might even call it a closed heart. A closed heart. And the truth is, it's not just the children, is it? It's not just the kids. You don't have to be a parent to know this dynamic. We can find it in our own hearts, can't we? Have you ever found yourself... Reluctant to seek forgiveness even though you knew you were in the wrong and you thought, well, their wrong was worse than my wrong. Have you ever, have, have you ever felt that reluctance that where you're just stuck and you just wouldn't move to ask for forgiveness? Have you ever found yourself looking for ways to justify yourself so that you don't have to bear responsibility for something that you did do wrong? And of course we have. We all have done that. It's so prevalent for us Christians that some of us may even have done this this morning where we wronged someone, someone in our family, and we haven't asked them yet to forgive us. We haven't sought their forgiveness. Our hearts may be closed in that way. And the Lord would want to open it. The closed heart is not limited to failing to take responsibility. I did use that for a reason because I think, I think the closed heart has some broad application, but it's not limited to failing to take responsibility. The, the closed heart, even worse, it can be found to, in our attitude toward those in need, toward those that need our help. Remember this from last Sunday, if I could have that first slide, please. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? And over the last couple of weeks, we've been in 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 11, now through verse 24, and we've been focusing on a critical mark of the true child of God. That mark is this, it's loving one another. If we belong to Jesus… We love each other, and we show that love. We love each other for real. We love each other from the heart. We will love the very people worshiping around us in this room. These are the people we're called to love. We learn that we must put aside hatred and not be like Cain who murdered his brother. And last week we talked about a specific application of love giving to those among us who may be in need usually at some point in life just about everybody is in need but one of the applications of showing the love of christ of having the love of christ of not being closed-hearted is that we give to those among us who are in need and last week i challenged us to pray and to see if anyone came to mind where you saw a need in the body that you perhaps could meet. You had the goods of the world that you could then deliver to that person and meet their need. And if not, and even if so, perhaps the Lord will lay someone on your heart today. And if so, I encourage you to open your heart. Let the love of Christ that you know, let it flow from you into others in the body. And God will do a great work among us as we do this. Today, we're going to look more at opening our hearts, and specifically, what what to do when our hearts are not open. When they're closed, what do we do? When they're closed, what do you do at that time? Maybe you know your heart's closed this morning, and maybe you know that, that that needs to change, so what do you do? And here's a simple proposal. We're going to start here, and then we're going to jump into the text. When your heart is closed, believe and love. When your heart is closed, two things to do, believe and love. What should we do when we discover a closed heart inside ourselves? We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we love one another. Believe and love. And by doing these, we will abide in God, and God will abide in us. And we're going to see the Scriptures that back that up. Let's take a look at the text Uh, Well, first let me give you the first point, okay, and that is understanding the closed heart, understanding the closed heart. We're going to look at this in verses 19 to 20. So look at your Bibles. I'm going to read all six verses, 19 to 24, and then we're going to focus on verse 19 and 20 in this first point, understanding the closed heart. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. And now we'll just go back to verses 19 to 20 to focus on those. And you can see the verse there. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Now, you remember. You may remember last week that I described the biblical idea of the heart a little different than the modern idea of the heart. It's, uh, it's more substantive in the biblical concept, in the, in the Jewish thinking, in the, in, and in the first century thinking. The heart refers to the command station or the center of the whole person. If you want to talk about what you believe, what you value, you might use that metaphor of the heart to say, this is in my heart. Uh, When you feel that that urge of compassion to give to someone in need, that comes from the heart. The New Bible Dictionary says, it is the heart which makes a man or a beast what he is and governs all his actions. That's kind of the idea of the heart in the Bible. So, it's in the heart that you'll find what a person believes… And what that person feels most strongly about. And last week we saw that if we have Christ in His love, then when we see a fellow believer in need, and we have the means to help, our hearts are moved to meet that need, to help them. Our hearts are open, and they're not closed. But our hearts, I think as we all know, our hearts can be closed, and that's why the Scripture's here. Our hearts can be closed. We can actively close them. Let me put this passage up from last week uh, up on the screen. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Now, when John wrote this idea about closing one's heart to a brother in need, he probably had in mind the Old Testament Scripture, which he knew very well and often referred to. A lot of times the New Testament writers were referring to the Old Testament, and they did it often. And so this is probably the path that he had in mind, and that's Deuteronomy 15, uh, verses 7 to 9. If I could have that next slide, please. If among you… This is, so this is the law of Moses, and it's how Israelites are to treat each other. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. There's that idea of a closed heart. But you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Okay, that's all well and good. There's actually, among the the ancient Israelites, God was commanding, no one should be impoverished among the ancient Israelites. That's what He's saying there. Well, let's go to that next slide and see the rest of verses seven to nine. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, "The seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he cried to the Lord against you, and you' be guilty of sin." Ah, so here we get a clear picture of what a closed heart looks like, of what it looks like when we close our hearts. A closed heart has a secret thought. It's a thought that maybe you never even tell anyone else because we know certain things that we think, if we tell them to other people, well, they're not going to have a very high opinion of us. And so we keep it to ourselves. And if we're not careful we can go along with those closed-heart thoughts. You know, in this case, in the Scripture you see there up on the screen, it has to do with the Sabbath year. In the Sabbath year, debts in Israel, that's every seventh year, debts in Israel would be forgiven. So, let's say an Israelite has a bad crop, a bad harvest, and because of that, they have nothing. They fall into poverty. Well, another Israelite is to come along and see their brother in need and to say, oh, Um, I'm going to lend you everything you need. Don't worry. This way you can get back on your feet. And, And so that's the idea. But depending on when this loan is made, maybe it's, you know, five years after the last Sabbath year or six years after the last Sabbath year, so there's only one or two years to go in the loan, and therefore there might not be enough time for the borrower to pay back the entire loan. By the way, they were required to loan with no interest, to lend at no interest to one another. So this was purely, this, this, this lending was purely to help the other. But if there wasn't going to be enough time to pay that loan back, to have the full term, you know, it's not 60 months, it's only 12 months away or 18 months away. The secret thought, could come into the heart and say, hey, if you step out there and do this, you're probably not going to get all your money back. And so he, he doesn't go around saying that. He doesn't go around saying, I'm not going to sacrifice from my own for the good of this brother. But he just steps back. He doesn't do anything. Or he makes up another excuse. Oh, I'd love to do it, but I just can't. But what's going on in reality is that the heart is closed and he has unworthy thoughts. And it's interesting because as you look at this passage, you begin to see that the potential lender, what's he going to do to justify his closed heart? he's going to find fault with the one in need. He will look, the Scripture says, grudgingly on his poor brother. In other words, he he finds fault with them. And, And that's the reason he's going to give as to why he's not going to be generous, as to why he's not going to sacrifice. But the truth is The real reason is that he doesn't want to incur a loss, even though that loss is entirely tied up with God's good laws, His commandments. You see, that's the secret motive. That's the secret and unworthy thought that makes for a closed heart. And so let me me lay this out here right now because… I think this is is how God wants to help us and how we can grow. And we talked about this last week. I I got even more evidence of it this week, how much you've loved each other and sacrificed for each other. But, But here's the thing. Even right now, people might not even know. They might not be able to tell. But you may actually have a closed heart because you're harboring a secret, unworthy thought. And nobody knows. Except for God. And what does first John three twenty teach us? If I could have that next slide, please. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. And so, right there, right off the bat, recognize God knows everything. He sees it. He knows our hearts. He knows those secret and unworthy thoughts that close our hearts, whether it's in giving to a brother or sister in need, like we're specifically talking about, or more broadly, things like refusing to ask forgiveness, refusing to take responsibility, refusing to acknowledge that God's Word speaks to us about a particular situation, and rejecting that and putting ourselves above it. All of those things are representative of a closed heart. And here's the thing, others, you you may be able to convince others that you're justified, but God knows. He knows. And to be clear, in the context of this verse, when this says our heart condemns us, it's referring specifically to that closed heart, to having that secret, that secret thought inside that keeps those of us who have the world's good to refuse to give them to a sister or brother in need. God knows the thoughts of our hearts. And so it does us no good to fool other people when God already knows. You see that? We're only fooling ourselves. If we we think, well, I, I, I saved my own money here and nobody really knows why. Um... And maybe other people are like, well, yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. And, and I think in general, we, we should be pretty um, careful before we uh, bring a judgment to say, well, actually, you're not doing that. And that's where the Holy Spirit works and, and His work comes in because God's never fooled and He knows exactly what's going on in our hearts. He knows when they're closed. And we're never fooling Him. And our efforts to justify ourselves fall short before Him. And so you can see why it's so critical that we're honest from the heart, that we're honest with ourselves, that we don't lie to ourselves. We don't make it a habit to deceive ourselves. And you can see why it's so critical that we love one another because loving one another and doing that, stepping into that, helps us remain honest, keeps us with open hearts, keeps us honest with ourselves and honest before God, honest from the heart. I already mentioned that these secrets of the heart are not confined to how generous we are with one another in in need. These sneaky thoughts are all over our calculations and value judgments. There are negotiations we've made in our hearts about truth, about principle, about relationships, about recreation, and on and on and on that can represent a closed heart to God. We may never share them with someone else because we know we're in the wrong but let's deal squarely this morning because God knows them all, right? They say crime doesn't pay. I think that's that's true. But some criminals, at least in this life, may beg to differ. They may think, oh, no, my crime paid quite well and worked out for me. But here's what really doesn't pay. Having a closed heart to God doesn't pay. And it does raise the question of that phrase, God is greater than our heart. Because on the one hand, I think you see it up there on the screen, right? God is greater than our heart. Yeah, good. Okay, I want to make sure I have the right slide up there. Uh, God is greater than our heart. On on the one hand, it's a warning. And it's a warning that says, God's heart is not like our heart, and God is over our heart. So, this is part of the problem when When you start with your own heart and project onto God, you think He has the same values and and value judgments as you do. And that's not the way it works. You have to start with His Word where God reveals to us what He's really like. And then allow your heart to be adjusted by the God who is greater than your heart. You see how that works? And so, His heart's not like our hearts. There's no sin in Him. And so, He knows our secret and our greedy thoughts, and we need to be aware of that, and we need to properly fear and reverence the Lord and not try to deceive Him. But praise the Lord that this idea that God is greater than our heart is more than a warning. Because, you know, most often when we come into God's presence, most of the time that we come into into God's presence, I I mean really come into His presence, I mean Taking time in his word and in prayer or or among his people like this and and gather together, come to the Lord's table. When we come into his presence, many times we'll face condemnation. We're going to feel that condemnation. And, and, And that's not new. You see that in the Bible, that's been happening ever since the fall. Isaiah goes to the temple, he's brought into God's presence. He's so undone in the presence of God that he thinks he's going to die. John, who wrote, who wrote the letters of John, also wrote the Gospel of John, also wrote the book of Revelation. And in Revelation, he tells about a similar experience to Isaiah where he's brought into the presence of the Lord. And when he is brought into the presence of the Lord, he, he like turns around and sees the Lord. He falls, the Scripture says, he falls at his feet, the Lord's feet, as though he's dead. He collapses in a heap. He's just overcome. Why? Why why do these great men of God do this? But because they know that they're sinners. And they can't stand the presence of the Holy God. When we spend time in prayer and God's Word, really, Pressing in, seeking to understand His Word, coming face to face with Him in that way. Spending time in prayer where we're, we're not just throwing up a prayer quickly. And by the way, you can pray quickly. But, but you have to know that experience, that, that, that reality of seeking God in prayer. Desiring to be near Him, to know Him, to pour out your heart before Him and have Him Adjust and encourage and apply grace to you by His Spirit in prayer. And, and when you do that, many times you're going to face condemnation because you're coming into the presence of the Lord and you may find your own heart condemning you. You're not good enough. Remember, you committed that sin. Remember, you just did that. Remember that evil thought you had. How dare you? You're not worthy. And you may find your own heart bringing condemnation because we've drawn close to the most glorious one and we certainly fall short of His glory. And those secret thoughts are laid bare in His presence because we know He knows. And there's no sense trying to lie to Him about it. But as I said, this isn't just a a warning Isaiah had his speech redeemed. In his story, uh, coal was touched to his lips to, to demonstrate the, the forgiveness of God so that he could speak, he could prophesy. And the Lord, in John's story, the Lord lays his hand on John, puts his hand on him and says, don't be afraid. Raises him up so he can proclaim and prophesy. And the Lord has some things to say to us Two, earlier in this very letter, John wrote in chapter 1, if I could have that slide, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Praise Him. And then he writes in, in 1 John chapter 2, if I could have that slide, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, and we do sin, we have an advocate. With the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. You see, God knows our hearts. He knows our sins. Even before you're willing to confess them, He knows them. But He provides for our forgiveness through Jesus, our Savior. Our Lord Jesus is our advocate. So if you've had a closed heart, if you've had the secret thoughts, Turn to our Lord, who is greater than our hearts. And it's that idea that He's greater than our hearts that takes us into the flow of the text and into the next verses we're going to look at, But if I could have that, that proposition, when your heart is closed, do this, believe and love. When your heart's closed, believe in love. Let's take a look at our second point. We've looked at understanding the closed heart Let's take a look at keeping an open heart. And this is verses 21 to 24. Re- let me read that to you again. And if I could have that ver- those verses up on the screen. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whenever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He has commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God, and God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us, by the Spirit whom He has given us. Right here at the beginning, you see that word, condemn. You see that word, condemn, again. We've seen that a couple times now. You may remember a bit earlier in chapter 3, back in verse 14, a couple weeks ago, we were told that those who have trusted Jesus have passed from death to life. Do you remember that? We've passed from death to life. And that harkens back to something that Jesus said, which is recorded in John chapter 5, verse 24. So when John writes in 1 John, in John chapter 3 that we pass passed from death to life, he's basically quoting Jesus. He's essentially quoting Jesus Um, from back in in Jesus' earthly ministry. And Jesus said there that whoever believes, whoever believes, does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And so you see that that judgment is equated to condemnation, or condemnation is equated to judgment. And, And condemnation is God's judgment for sin. And if we're under that condemnation, then we're facing death in its fullest form. You're as good as dead. You hear that in movies sometimes when, someone, when, when some dangerous individual is after someone. They, they say, you're as good as dead. Well, that's everyone under the wrath of God, under that condemnation, as good as dead. Condemnation here equals death. But anyone who has believed in Jesus has escaped This condemnation, they pass from death to life. Even when we sin, what's the scripture saying? We have an advocate. And therefore, all condemnation is taken away. And so, we were under condemnation. We were under God's judgment. We were facing death. We were as good as dead. But we passed from that now to life. And we live. And we live. Now we can go to God with hearts that do not condemn us. There is no more death, no more judgment, no more condemnation for us. See, when we go to prayer and our hearts condemn us and we experience, we recognize again the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. We can put aside that condemnation, say no to it, and have life in Christ. There's no more condemnation. There's life for us. If there is no more condemnation for us, then what is left? If God's judgment has been removed, then what's left? Well, we know from John that God has shown us unsurpassable love just so that we could become children of God. He's shown us His unsurpassable love. He took on the condemnation. He took on the judgment. He took on the death so that we could become His children. So there's no condemnation And God has made us His children, and that means that we're left with a loving relationship with God. He loves us as as our Father. He loves us as a Father who loves, loves their child. He loves us as He loves Jesus. He loves us as He loves the Son, and therefore we can come confidently to Him. Notice that the Scripture says we have confidence before God. That's an important note, before God. You know, sometimes we observe that people have a lot more boldness when they're not there in person. They have more boldness in a letter or in an email. Sometimes we observe that social justice warriors launch their volleys from behind a computer screen. They have no uh, trouble calling people names or or, uh, uh, making slanderous accusation. Uh, And many people can be very bold when they don't have to go before another person. But when you're directly in the presence of another, it changes the dynamic. And that's why it's often important to meet with someone face-to-face because they're a person just like you're a person. Well, imagine now coming face-to-face with God who's, who's a person, but He's not a human. He's God. In that moment, you may not feel very confident. I heard one person try to illustrate it, and they said, you know… Uh, When I'm in a cage with a 600-pound gorilla, I try not to provoke him. Well, God is much more than a 600-pound gorilla, isn't He? And when you're face-to-face with God, you may not feel very confident, but here it is. Because we are His children, no longer under condemnation, we can come confidently. You know that's what our prayers are. And we so often take that confidence for granted. You know, we pray for our food, we pray before bed, we pray before we travel or or for any event. And we may forget what a privilege it is that we, we talk to God as if He's our Father. Just easily and comfortably and confidently. Certainly, we should be respectful, right? When we talk to God, some people love to take that, that friendship with God to a, a great, uh, a, maybe an extreme, and, and, and really focus on the casual nature of their relationship with God. It's okay, but He's our Father, He's our King, He's our God. We need to be respectful, but we are confident, aren't we? We're confident in His presence, and we're able to do that because of His sacrificial love toward us, His open-heartedness toward us. And so, we're so confident that when we pray, we know that God hears us. We know He's inclined to answer us. Now, you may have noticed as well, it might have jumped out at you, that we're talking about faith. And we're talking about the removal of condemnation. But we're also seeing a good bit here about Commands and commandments. And, and so a lot of times it's hard to understand how do commandments and belief go together? Because commandments seem to be calling for a strict obedience, a, a duty, doing, whereas faith seems to be entirely calling for something internal, um, a, a, a a sense of persuasion and orientation. How do they go together? Well, first it's important to note that commandments aren't bad. When we talk about being the problem with being saved by works, we're talking about the desire from within, the pride from within that wants to save oneself out of, out of a self-righteousness, a righteousness that comes by works. But the problem there isn't the commands. The commands of God are good. They teach us what's right or righteousness. And when we look at the commands of God, whether in the Old Testament or like right here in the New, we're going to see the righteousness of God. We're going to see what we should be like. And in seeing the righteousness that comes through the command, we actually Get to know God better. This is what God is like. This is what He desires. It's what pleases Him. It's what He's like. And so in the commands, we actually see the righteousness of God and the character of God, the nature of God. The commandments are good. They're not our enemy. They're our friend. But notice what we're being commanded to obey here in this text We're being commanded to believe. We're being told to obey faith. Isn't that interesting? We're being commanded to have an internal persuasion or orientation, to be confident about things that we can't see yet, to be certain of what we hope for that we're going to see the face of Jesus return. We're being commanded to have that belief. That's a powerful thought. And we're being told to obey faith, essentially. And specifically, faith, you look at the text there, you see it, it's faith, believe, you're being commanded to believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. In the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. I'll we'll just break that down briefly. First of all, it's His Son. That's His is God there. And what's fascinating is in these very verses here, you see, if you look at them, you'll see um, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So you get the Trinity in these, this is one of those, those passages where you get the whole Trinity wrapped up into it. God refers to the Father. Jesus, of course, refers to the Son or the second person of the Trinity. And the Spirit refers to the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, And so, His here is God the Father, and we're being told to have faith in His Son. That's the second person of the Trinity. It's God Himself. It's the Son of God become man. He became Jesus, who we knew as Jesus of Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem and then went down to Egypt and came out of Egypt, but then was raised in a little town in the northern parts of Israel called Nazareth. And so he's Jesus of Nazareth. So Christ is not his last name, is it? Christ is a title. Christ means anointed one, the Messiah. It's, it's code for the Savior King of God. And so we're to have faith in, the, in God's Son who's became a man and he's the second person of the Trinity so he's He's God and man. He's the God-man and lived as Jesus of Nazareth and died on the cross. And we're being told to have faith in His name, in the name of the Son of His Son, Jesus Christ. And so that name, that idea, the the idea of having faith in His name, and it's interesting, right? Because He doesn't doesn't call Him Jesus of Nazareth. He calls Him Jesus Christ Christ. So, his, his name now is the exalted name, Jesus, the anointed one, the Son of God, the Savior King of the world. In other words, when he says, have faith in the name, he's saying, have faith in the whole person, the fullness of who Jesus is. And in the Scriptures, faith is often represented as obedience. To obey, to truly obey, obey means that something is happening inside. True obedience is not simply outward duty, but it starts with the heart. Sometimes the way we train our children and the way we train ourselves is we know something is right to do, we don't want to do it, we go right ahead and do it anyway, because we know we ought to, but then we know we should have the faith to do so, to obey. And as we actually obey, and the Spirit of God works in us, it stirs up our faith. You see, the, the outward and the command and the obedience is, is linked to, inextricably, to the inward heart, to the what we value, what we believe, our persuasion, our orientation, our Faith. And so, faith is often often represented as obedience. But obedience, true obedience, comes from the heart. It's the right attitude. It's doing the right thing with the right attitude. Belief underlies true obedience. And I should point out that, as I mentioned earlier, obedience can be done out of a disobedient heart. It can happen that way, right? We had the example. Remember Cain, not that long ago in the Scriptures, a few verses up. Cain brought his sacrifice, but wasn't obedient, didn't have faith. And so, real obedience is a product of faith. And when we're told that this command is for us to believe, that God's command for us is to believe, to be certain of what we hope for in Christ and certain of what we cannot yet see in Christ Jesus. God is essentially saying that this is our all in all, that everything we are, from the heart through action, it's all, all of that is required of the Christian to give our all for Christ Jesus. That's the command. If you belong to God... And you're obedient to Him. If you want to please Him and be obedient to Him, then you must believe in Christ Jesus. And if you believe in Christ Jesus, then you must desire to obey God and to please Him. And they're just linked like that, and you cannot unlink them. So this isn't a list of do's and don'ts. It's a command to believe. It's a call to love a person. And there's more to this command, isn't there? There's the believe part, and if I could have that next slide so we could point out a little bit better. You see that there's the believe part, but you also see underlined there that we are to believe. This is His commandment, God's commandment, is to believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He's commanded us, right back to the idea of command. And they go together, just like... Just like if you believe in Jesus, you'll obey His commands. If you love Jesus, you'll obey Him. In the same way, if you belong to Jesus, you'll love one another. And you'll open your heart. If I could have that last slide, that proposition once again. When your heart is closed, believe in Jesus and love one another. And you'll see God working in you God working in the church, you'll you'll be abiding in God, and God will be abiding in you, and He'll be abiding in the church, and our church will be abiding in Him. And how glorious is that thought? I want to ask Joel to come, and we're going to sing a song of thanksgiving uh, to end the meeting here this morning. But as they come and, and get ready, I want to encourage you again to think prayerfully, and to spend some time in the presence of God. Is there someone in the church whose need you can meet? Do you have the worldly goods? Maybe it's, a, maybe it's money. Maybe it's a thing. Maybe it's time. Maybe it's, maybe it's something you can sacrifice for the good of another in the church who's in need. And in that way, you can show the love of Christ. But also, I want to encourage you, I'm thinking back over our sermon, that if you have a secret thought, an unworthy thought that's keeping you from opening your heart, that's actually keeping your heart closed, would you open your heart to the Lord now? And as we sing, would you say, search me, O God, see if there's any wicked way in me, and root that out, show me so that I can open my heart to You first, Lord, and to all my brothers and sisters. Would you stand with us, please, and let's sing. Our Thanksgiving and praise. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.